0: Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. Today on The Art of Range, we are re-releasing a prior episode, Many new listeners have said they are not aware of the early podcast content, and much of it was enjoyable enough it's worth hearing again. So we're doing a rerun this week of one of my favorite episodes, the interview with Fred Provenza talking about animal behavior, diet selection, and the relationships between animals and their environments. We also visited briefly about his new book at the time, Nourishment, which I had not yet read. I have now read most of it and can enthusiastically recommend it. Please enjoy this timeless talk with Dr. Fred Provenza. My guest today on the show is Dr. Fred Provenza. He has been an animal behaviorist researcher at Utah State University for many years and is somewhat retired now. Uh, We're at the tail end of a series, a mini-series inside the podcast on grazing fundamentals. And we want to talk a little bit today about uh, animals that are adapted to their environment. Uh, Dr. Provenza, welcome to the show. Nice to be here with you, Tip. Thank you. There's a quote from Jim Corbett, who was one of the founders of the Malpai Borderlands Group a while back in a paper written by Nathan Sayre. Jim Corbett was quoted saying that rangeland-based livestock production probably represents the only True example of man's adaptation to wild biotic communities, uh, and along those lines, uh, Jerry Holacek had also argued that that doing this well, in other words, doing rangeland-based livestock production well, with a minimum of inputs, is a matter of national security. And you know, its success in a in truly sustainable range and livestock management requires some kind of ecological match between the animal and the environment, and you've spent a career studying this. What what does it mean for a domestic livestock animal to match its environment? Tip, I see it as a dance,
1: actually, a dance between the organisms and the environment they inhabit. Um, both the environment and the creatures in that environment are participating in this dance, and they're both creating and ever-changing um, from the standpoint of the animals, whether they're wild or domestic animals, I think of it as uh, how animals change form, function, and behavior to live uh, successfully in an environment. At the same time, I think it's important to realize, and I'm sure you got into this in previous podcasts, that the animals, by participating, are actually changing the environment. So that's where I see the dance, the environment's ever changing, the animals are changing as well,
0: and the animals are participating in changing the environment. Hmm. In, a, in a 2014 paper on that topic, you state that, that we humans have tried really hard to modify our environment to suit our animals at great cost to us, both economically and ecologically, and perhaps with limited success. Uh, Can you describe that struggle and what you see as
1: maybe a solution? That writing came from actually early on in my career, uh, involved at Utah State University and working as a technician, actually, in the rain science department 40-some years ago, traveling around the state of Utah and looking, and this is not in any way critical of anyone, but just looking at what people had tried to do historically with those landscapes uh, vegetation and revegetation efforts, and and uh, in some cases certainly with success, but in, in many cases um, not having so much success in ter- huge costs and not so much success in terms of changing plant communities, and that as as well as um, the years I spent on the ranch in Colorado made me think a great deal about. Uh, what's it mean for animals to be adapted to the environments where they live? And uh, as you say, then, spent 40-some years thinking about how animals change form, function, and behavior uh, to to live within environments. From the standpoint of form, or what people would often refer to as morphology, how animals are built, the size of animals, uh, The kind of things that Kit Farrow talks about in terms of different animals and the sizes of those animals. Um, I was exposed to that early on in my career as an undergraduate in wildlife biology at Colorado State University. We were being shown example after example of how animals within a species end up matched to their local environments. And take bison, for instance, if they're in the tall grass prairie and there's a huge amount of food available, they're going to be larger in body size than bison that are in the in the southwest, arid southwestern U.S., where there's not as much resource. So I was exposed to many, many examples like that um, from all different species of wildlife. So that's the form part. And that happens with human beings as well. There's some interesting anthropological literature to show mm-hmm. That, depending on the amount of resource that our ancestors had available to them, they were either little tiny humans or big humans. so there's the whole form part, and that's a part that uh, that people like Kit Farrow have certainly emphasized matching animals to environments as a low cost way to uh, to produce uh within environments. then there's the whole business of function, which has to do with physiology and uh you know, physiological kind of adaptations that have to do with internal organisms in the animal, whether that's the gut or the liver or parotid salivary glands or all these different internal organs that actually are flexible. They they change in terms of their size and their function, and their kidneys as well, uh, to, to um, adapt to the environments where the animals actually live. So there's form, there's function, and the third part is the behavior of the animals. And uh, we spent so much time thinking about that and thinking about what animals learn and how they learn and how, for instance, that can complement form and function. For instance, there was some studies several years ago at the U.S. Sheep Experiment Station where they were looking uh, trying to select for a band of sheep that ate large amounts of sagebrush. And they were able to do that by taking fecal analyses and simply looking at which, which sheep ate the most sagebrush. And we all thought after those experiments were conducted, I did at least, that we were looking at differences in function, that the animals that were able to eat a lot of sagebrush were physiologically adapted. They were better able to detoxify, for instance, the terpenes in sagebrush and so forth. But a few years later, they came out with a paper that was showing that it was a behavioral adaptation. The sheep that were eating the most sagebrush had learned that if they ate an appetizer of bitter brush first, that enabled them to eat way more sagebrush. How's that working? Well, we were doing studies at that same time with foods that had that we created that had were high in tannins and were high in terpenes, and what we were showing was that an appetizer of food high in tannins enabled sheep to eat way more food high in terpenes, and that was a perfect analog for bitter brush, which is high in tannins and sagebrush, which is high in terpenes. The sheep had simply figured out that an appetizer or a bitter brush helps the sagebrush go down. So those kind and I won't go on, I have many, many examples of that. Those kind of behavioral adaptations complement form and function in the environment. And the part that we became so interested in was the whole social cultural part of this business how that then gets transferred from one generation to the next generation to the next. And we learned that, you know, the diet that mom's eating um, influences her offspring in terms of form and function, how they actually grow and develop in the womb. Mm -hmm. Um, What mom's eating is also uh, provides cues through compounds in the amniotic fluid to what mom's eating. So the young Their young organism, even before birth, is already starting to to learn about and become adapted to the environment. Um, We can talk a bit more in a minute about gene expression, but genes are being expressed uh, to enable that kind of thing. After birth, um, the foods that mother's eating, flavor mother's milk, those are cues to the young offspring as to what's what's food in the environment. And then, as young animals start to forage, uh, following mom around, they're learning what and what not to eat from what she does. Uh, so we st- we spend a lot of time studying those kind of relationships. Um, it's not trivial to mention that those very same things apply to human beings in our di- on our food selection. The, the reviewing the the literature on human beings, it's striking the degree to which. Um, the same sort of things are happening with with us as well. Makes sense. But it's striking to me the degree to which that takes place. And then one can think about, you know, what does it mean to be locally adapted to the environments as they change and to create with that? But then also, what have we done with domestic animals and with human beings that make us not so adapted to to what's happening? Uh, And that ties in with, you know, how we feed the animals in our care, whether that's um, on pastures or on rangelands, what kind of options do we offer them? Same thing with human beings. What's available to a human being in the supermarket? And to what degree does that enable health or not? And then to what degree does the culture help to further enable the the health of of us and the
0: animals in our care? You know, I can see how in the absence of Cheap petroleum-based production inputs, even a petroleum-based economy worldwide, this would clearly be necessary. But but I think I think we see a trend toward that now. Uh, it, for sure, this is a trend in the livestock industry. But is the trend happening because we have expensive inputs already, and that demands some environmental matching, or is it because uh, being green is in vogue? Probably both things, Tip. Probably both things. Um,
1: We both know several years ago, there was quite a lot of talk about peak oil and uh, a lot was being written about that. I certainly was reading a lot in that literature and thinking about longer term, what's that mean? Um, You know, we've We've forgotten about that momentarily, I think, because there's a there, through fracking and different techniques we've been able to to get around that hurdle. But I see that simply as a momentary kind of thing. And so, um, but there were several people at the time, livestock producers, I'm talking about now, who were really taking that seriously and and thinking about, you know, what are where are, do our costs come from? What where are our costs coming from? And how can we cut costs? How can we cut costs of production? And um I think I found very interesting the the folks, and still do that think about well how how do wildlife make a living in these landscapes, and what can we do to mimic that, to mimic natural processes, everything from selecting for animals that are a match to the environment, right on through to thinking about when do you calve or when do you lamb and you know those folks went down a path of saying, look, the low cost way is to think about when wildlife have their babies. And that's probably when we should be doing that as well, because we have less, less inputs. So I think that whole idea of inputs and fossil fuel inputs, I don't see that as something we've really gotten around. I think it's just short term that, that, uh, you know, we have, we got around that, that whole worry about peak oil. But I, I think Personally, that there there are limits to how much oil there is. Uh, the other part that I think that I take very 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 seriously nowadays is the whole idea of of climate change, and uh, and what that what that's meaning for for human beings and for all the creatures on the planet. I, I think that's another another issue related to our use of. Of, of fossil fuels, and yeah, uh, you know, I I just uh, as I was writing the book Nourishment, uh, the last section of that book is titled "Fading into Mystery," and it has to do with the ever-changing nature of nature and the roles that all creatures, including human beings, play in participating in change and in that dance of change. Um, but when you realize the impact that, that we're having globally on, you know, the big news just this week, insect populations, huh? huge crashes in insect populations across the globe. People have known that for many, many years through so viewing studies in Germany that where people had just volunteered, they've been monitoring insect populations over about a 25-year period. And they're just noting, you know, insect numbers are dropping, dropping, dropping. And uh, I think even in this roughly 70 years, I've been on the planet and we're here in the Madison Valley and we've got this beautiful Madison River that flows through this valley. Now, the fishing on that river was quite different 40 years ago from what it is today. The size of the fish, the number of the fish, markedly smaller nowadays. Mm. And I recall talking with a man. 40-some years ago when we were first coming here, and I was telling him, just raving about the fishing. And he told me, he said, I I can't go there anymore. He said, my memory's too long. I oh, my goodness. And I think, to me, the lesson is that change occurs, well, actually not so gradually, but within your lifetime. You Mm -hmm. see that. And... We don't realize then from one generation to the next, just like I didn't. I understand absolutely when that man told me, my memory's too long. But to me, it's like, this is great fishing. We take people fishing here now and they may think, you know, well, it's great fishing, but it's not even in the same universe. And so if... I think more and more about these changes that have occurred within the last 50, 100, 100, even 200 years, which is nothing. And uh, maybe I'm getting old, but I I, I really wonder. Uh, and when people say we've got 10 years to get it right on climate, and I think, and I believe that. Uh, but I think what a massive effort huh, for for all of us, from for the personal level to the level of the broader influences people might might play, I, I take that very seriously. Mm-hmm. And all that has to do, I think, with local adaptation and participating and changing the environments we all inhabit. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, realizing and appreciating that that we do that, that, and that all creatures do. When they eat themselves out of house and home, as we know for domestic or wild animals, populations crash. Um, and the same with, with human beings, I think, you know, we there are limits.
0: There are carrying capacity for, for everything on the globe. Mm-hmm. We have another project going on right now at WSU looking at uh, various aspects of rangeland resiliency and trying to increase both operational and ecological resiliency against climate variability and future climate change. And one of the one of the angles that we found in discussing some of these ideas with ranchers is that it's one thing to say people need to do something because it is eventually a necessity either ecologically or economically uh but most of the things that we're recommending that people do to maximize or or optimize rangeland rangeland resiliency are good ideas regardless of what's going on with the climate and I think we see some sort of the same thing going on with uh with matching the animal to the environment things like Mature cow body size, I think, is going down on average, at least among the larger ranchers who are more acutely attuned to the economic feedbacks of having to feed large cows. And I think you also see uh, calving dates moving later and later in the spring for the same reason. It may not be an acute economic necessity at the moment, but people recognize that it works in general regardless of whether we're being pushed by petroleum-based economics or not. I think there's some of that going on now, both with range management and with animal husbandry. Absolutely the case, Tip. I couldn't agree more with with what you just said. And
1: I think managing in the ways that you were talking about is is a way to cut costs. When you get right down to it, it's a super way to cut costs. And long-term, thinking about food security and sustainability,
0: it's it's certainly the way to go. But there's still a couple of camps on that, and they're pretty adamant about it. Uh, answer the skeptic who says, you know, we have we have really high power genetics in modern, particularly beef cattle breeding stock, and we need to feed them and give them uh, fancy minerals so that they can realize that genetic potential. Uh, you know, the argument is that that investment will be returned because we have pretty fancy animals. Is that... Uh, Non-sustainable? It's certainly the case. There are different camps uh, on on these uh, on
1: these approaches to to livestock, and as, as well as approaches to finishing livestock, feedlots versus uh, finishing on on pasture. Um, and maybe maybe the truth lies in between on those. Maybe there'll be some sort of a of a balance that takes place um, depending on the amount of resource that's available. Um, if you have. Enough resource and the costs are low enough, then certainly larger animals can make sense. Um, on many of the pasture and range-based operations, I can see where smaller
0: body size uh, makes sense. Yeah, I think there's a difference in in land types. This is one of the things that Karen and I visited about briefly. You know, people hear pasture and they hear range and maybe associate them as the same things. Uh, we were trying to split that baby so to speak and kind of tease out where the differences are and, and i think in my mind a pasture is a place where the entire you know semi-built environment is structured around raising animals when i think of rangeland i think of wildlands that may have livestock on them part of the time but that every aspect of that environment isn't being managed toward livestock production and that changes things a bit you know if you're managing irrigated pasture that produces 12 tons of forage per acre per year and then you move to corn stalks and then you go to a a bunk feeding situation and then back to irrigated pasture that's a much different situation than somebody who's perhaps 100% dependent on wildlands or what I would call rangelands most of the year there's different pressures in those different production systems
1: absolutely the case and that changes the economics of the situation the the whole works changes and I, I wouldn't want to say that one is right or wrong or better or not than the other one. I think they both, uh, they both can work and they both can work to, to help, help sustain people within populations, huh? To, to provide, to provide a source of food for people within a population. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly the case that, that it's hotly debated nowadays. And, uh, when I read some of the literature on climate change and diet and the relationship between our diet and climate change, uh, there's a great deal that's being written about that and written about you know advocates of one diet or the other or certain diets. I shouldn't necessarily say one diet or another, but um, that some diets are more sustainable than other diets uh, related to to climate change
0: and fossil fuel inputs and so forth. You can't see my notes, and I know you don't have a printout of what I sent you, but that's a great segue to the question that I happen to have up next. Is a lo- is locally adapted animal husbandry and a system built on that only possible if American consumers revise their tastes and expectations for meat? You know, I I, I think that's a very good question, and I don't think people
1: ask that question very often, actually. Um we we learn our dietary habits, just just no different from a cow or a sheep or a goat. And what we've learned, what I've learned certainly since I was a young child was grain-fed beef. That I remember from when I was a child, from when our family couldn't actually afford steaks or anything like that to now when when it's much more readily available, but grain-fed beef was the thing, grain-fed beef. And so the palates of, of people are accustomed to that. They're accustomed to eating grain-fed beef. And it's interesting to, to read from, uh, studies around the world where people compare, whether it's lamb or beef and in different, you know, I'm thinking of studies that have been conducted in Europe, the Mediterranean area here in the U.S. If people are born and raised eating pasture-reared and finished animals, that's what they prefer. If they're if they're born and raised eating uh, animals that have come through feedlots, that's what they prefer. And people who are familiar with eating grain-fed beef often think that the taste of, of pasture-reared as well as wildlife species is strong. It has a gamey flavor, a strong gamey flavor rather than realizing that that's that's the characteristics of of the meat. One of the things that I find really interesting, uh, and we don't have to go deeply into this, but I wrote about it in Nourishment, and I've just worked on long and hard over the last couple of years on a paper related to this. And the question we raised in this paper, is grass-fed meat and dairy, Better for human and environmental health. so we're really exploring this topic. We've, we've often touted pasture reared as better from a health standpoint because it's higher in ratio in omega-3 fatty acids. Um, and so you, you see that with both dairy products and with meat. It was surprising to me over the last few years in reviewing the literature to realize that some of what had been thought about omega-3s and omega-6s, the anti-inflammatory reported benefits of omega-3s, the pro-inflammatory downside of omega-6s, I don't see that reading the literature nowadays. I don't see strong cases being made for omega-3s and against omega-6s. there's a lot of studies out there, but I, I don't see that strong case being made. What we make a case for in this paper is that the, the biodiversity of plants in the diets of animals is affecting the flavor and the biochemical characteristics of meat and dairy products both. And we're arguing and marshalling together what evidence we can find That's really what's going to be important in terms of health and in terms of of the health benefits of eating animals that are finished, that spend their lives on pastures. Hmm. And biodiversity becomes an absolutely critical part of that. All these different um, compounds, the phenolics and terpenes and alkaloids and on and on and on, all these that we don't have to go into detail on. They are all getting into meat and fat, and you can really put a strong circumstantial case that that's that's hugely important in terms of the health benefits of eating a piece of meat. So um, we argued in that paper that that's not happening when animals are finished in feedlots because the diet is so is so phy- uh, phytochemically poor, as we would call it. Whereas when animals ha- are exposed, whether that's on pasture or on rangeland, biodiversity in both cases is really important because it's it's exposing the animals, for one, to the health benefits of all these secondary compounds. And we know there are many of those for, for health. And two, then that's getting into meat and milk and fat and,
0: and influencing the quality of that for, for human consumption. Mm-hmm. You said before that uh, particularly with regard to human health that eating a diet that is phytochemically deficient results in us over consuming primary nutrients because the body is trying to reach some critical threshold of the secondary compounds and I was curious whether that was the case uh, if, if that carries up the chain into meat or not it sounds like it does at least to some extent
1: I think it could we certainly are are raising that question in this paper we, we don't we don't um, it The paper came from from a study that I read about several years ago that was conducted in Australia. And these were researchers who study human nutrition and health. And what they did was to look at what's referred to as postprandial inflammatory responses. All that means is after you eat a meal, there's an inflammatory response. No matter what food we eat, there's an inflammatory response. And it's these... Long-term chronic inflammatory responses that are being linked so much with diseases like cancer and heart disease, and so they were interested in in comparing a wild herbivore, the kangaroo, with a domestic herbivore, Wagyu cattle, that were finished in feedlots, and looking at postprandial inflammatory responses
0: in the animals
1: in, in in human beings after we ate the meat. Okay, gotcha. So right. so. So they, they got meat from Wagyu cattle that were finished in the feedlot, meat from kangaroos that were um, foraging on rangelands, and you can buy kangaroo meat in the, in the grocery store there, you know. So they they got that, but the, the responses were just were just dramatic when you looked at at some of these inflammatory markers that these folks like to monitor. There were night and day differences. Hardly any inflammation with the meat from the kangaroo. Huge inflammatory responses with Wagyu cattle, so that's what got me thinking. Well, Birds, what's what's going on there? And many factors can can play a role, but this paper really that I this review paper on grass fed versus versus feedlot is really trying to explore explore that idea and say, is there a basis for that? You know, and you get into some of the literature. Um, we often well it, two things have happened with our with the human food supply actually you know foods have gotten blander over over time that that's well documented when you look at produce fruits and vegetables um it's really well documented that the phytochemical richness of those have gone down um meat it doesn't take long getting in particularly to the poultry literature and that to realize that there's no flavor left <laughs> in and it's the diet, the, how quickly we finish them, and the diets that they're on. So that, that's really well documented. So what do we do? We add artificial flavorings to try to enhance the flavors of bland foods. Or we might add real spices to those foods. The literature that was really interesting to me related to that is when you add these different kinds of spices to meat, again, the health benefits go up. The, the negative effects that meat can have go down when those spices are added to those things. Or for instance, I like to have a glass of red wine with, with a steak. There's a real functional significance to that combination. The polyphenols in the red line counter some of the inflammatory, the oxidative and the inflammatory responses in the meat. So I'm going into a lot of detail there, but it, it's all ties back to this idea of The diets that the animals eat and the diversity, that you know, we could start with soil health. What's the and it goes back to me to what you were saying. You know, a lot of these things just plain and simply make sense, regardless of what 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 your belief system is on climate change or whatever. Healthy soils, biodiversity of landscapes is good for animals. Including domestic species, and that's good for the human beings that use use the plants
0: and animals as a as a food source, yeah, I've had a number of ranchers tell me that the cattle that they have on on rangelands native rangelands that have you know say forty or fifty species in a in a given grazing site are much much healthier than the animals that are on irrigated pasture where they have maybe four or five total species that they have almost zero mortality and morbidity. You know, very little sick calf treatment in the animals that are on rangeland. Is that due to these plant secondary compounds that are providing? You know, we, I think of plant secondary compounds as associate them with toxins. Uh, but I suppose nearly everything that we have as medicine would be a toxin. You know, every to- every toxicologist will say toxicity is all in the dosage. So the stuff that's in these plants at small doses is having a beneficial effect. Is that right? Absolutely the case. Absolutely the case. Again, I couldn't agree more with
1: everything you just said. And I think that's, that's what we didn't realize. Um, You know, we were doing a lot of work on pasture the last five years of my career at Utah State University. We were actually given money to do do a bunch of work on pasture. It was quite interesting, but, you know, one of the things that we did, and again, this is in no way laying blame on anyone at all, I, I understand where it came from, but, you know, we were trying to get a variety of different species that, that had um, reasonable amounts of secondary compounds in them of one sort or another, but that's harder than what you might think, because we've really selected against secondary compounds in plants for pasture species, and we've done the same thing with, with the fruits and vegetables that that we raise. We did on pasture. I can see why people did that because those compounds set a limit on how much an animal can eat. That's really the thing. So if you want animals to be able to live on a monoculture of orchard grass or tall fescue or whatever it is, it makes sense that well, let's get rid of these toxins, huh? Or if you're an ecologist, you see them as feeding deterrents. Let's get rid of these deterrents. But I think. What strikes me now in thinking about all of that is, you know, if you've got a diversity of different plant species, a wide diversity, and they have different kinds and amounts of these secondary compounds in them, um, the body can deal with that quite well. Because, for instance, tannins, terpenes, alkaloids, they're detoxified in different ways inside the body, whether that's rumen microbes, the liver. They're detoxified in different ways. And so animals eat a little bit of a variety of these different compounds. Um, That allows them to meet their needs for nutrients like energy and protein by eating a little bit of a whole bunch of different foods. Um, But then that exposes cells and organ systems to all these secondary compounds that are just uh, huge in terms of health benefits and not just for. Domestic animals, but for human beings, the literature on that is amazing. When you start to read about what people are studying and starting to appreciate, um, the secondary compounds can can negate all of the all of the seven different hallmarks of how cancer works. They can they can block those different things. They're good in terms of uh, different disease states, including diabetes and so forth. Um, hmm. My wife and I were went to visit a friend, a medical doctor in Dillon, Montana, which is about an hour and a half, two hours drive from here this fall. And we, we noticed this plant that was growing. It had silver leaves and it was loaded with these orange berries. And they thought, you know, that looks like buffalo berry. And uh, we stopped on the way back and got a sample. And sure enough, it was silver leaf buffalo berry. We tasted the berries and they had, you know, the native plants. The fruits from those have a punch to them, right? Like, like meat from pasture-reared animals. They're, they're not just sweet. They have a real punch to them. Well, I started looking in the literature about silver leaf uh, buffalo berry, and I came across an amazing paper in one of the phytochemical journals that was talking about human health and what the, what the Native Americans used to do with plants like silver leaf buffalo berry, choke cherry, service berry, and on and on and on and uh, you know they made pemmican from that which is a way uh a way to to have fruit and vegetable fruit throughout the year actually up mm-hmm. throughout the winter season make it into pemmican and there again you get the the benefits of of these compounds that are are in the in the fruits as well as um you know the meat that the, from the animals that are eating these kinds of foods but they were making a case for, for the huge number of health benefits that these compounds have for us nowadays, including
0: uh, with issues related to, to diabetes. About a month ago, my 12-year-old daughter, Vivian, who gets a wild hair every once in a while, was noticing this ocean of roses, wild roses near our house. And she thought those berries have to be good for something. So she looked up a recipe for rose hip tea and started brewing some. And then, of course, we read up on it and says it's pretty good stuff. So we've been drinking rosehip tea ever since. Is there, I assume there's some health benefit to that? Yes. Yeah,
1: absolutely the case. Uh, it can be a little bit daunting to people uh, when you start to, for instance, rosehip tea. And there's probably dozens and dozens of these secondary compounds that that are in that. If a person were to look, and I'm sure some chemist has, has looked in, into mm-hmm. that. You know, early on in my career, I was heavily involved in trying to identify compounds in plants and look at whether they were deterrents or not and what roles they play. I, I don't think about that so much anymore. There There's tens of thousands of these compounds. Strawberry, for instance, produces 5,000 volatile compounds, 5,000 volatiles. So I've backed away from t- for. From trying to know all the compounds that are in these plants Mm -hmm. and in the fruits to just saying, you know, if if for our animals, as you were saying, um, you know, talking with those producers and they're saying that when they have diverse mixes of species, morbidity and mortality goes down. I've certainly heard that, too. I've worked with folks at the Noble Foundation in Ardmore, Oklahoma, and. For the last several years, they've told me the same thing as people are getting into more and more diversity of plant communities that they have livestock foraging on, morbidity and mortality have gone down. And so, to me, I think more in terms of biodiversity of different species. And I simply appreciate that that's going to lead to a whole bunch of different compounds that have nutritional and medicinal benefits for animals. And uh, I don't worry so much about. It uh trying to know all the different compounds that are in all the different plants. Um probably even when I was younger I couldn't have remembered them all. And now as I'm getting older for danger I can. Mm. But I think I think it's just appreciating that that all of those have benefits. And in the book I talk quite a lot about, you know, what is nutritional wisdom? How how does that work? And there are three facets, and we've been going all around them as, as we've talked. There's these flavor feedback relationships that are mediated by cells and organ systems, including the microbiome, which are, are feeding back through neurotransmitters, hormones, and peptides to change our liking as a function of their needs, you know, <laughs> Um so there are these flavor feedback associations, and we did so much study of that over the years, just showing that this feedback from cells and organ systems and microbiome is really influencing liking for flavors of different foods. So that's learned behavior. That's learned. That's a learned behavior. That's right. And then there's the availability of alternative foods. You know, what's available? What choices do animals have? It's so obviously the more we restrict animals, the less that ability can be expressed. The more, the greater the diversity, the greater the ability to express that. And then there's the whole social cultural part of things, the learning that begins in utero and early in life and then becomes a part of a culture that's that's uh, thriving within a foodscape, so to speak. Those those are really the basic elements and they relate whether you're talking about uh, mule deer or pronghorn that are right out here or cattle, sheep or goats or human beings. It's the same same kind of idea, and if any of those uh, three links is broken, then it's not you're not going to have a functional system in terms
0: of nutritional wisdom being expressed. Seems like to me. Mm-hmm. In in humans, I've heard it said that uh, one of the issues with obesity is that people forget what the feedback feels like uh, with satiation. And so they just keep eating, and maybe that's probably a result of uh, deficient food. But can animals forget, or is that can they? Can animals forget this behavior? And if if they do, can it be taught? Can it be regained? You know, you talked a little bit about forage sequencing, where eating one thing would sort of predispose the rumen to be able to digest something else, like a, a you know an oil in sagebrush. Do the animals, animals that have forgotten that, can they relearn it? Yes, certainly
1: the case that animals, um, because learning is such an important part of, of, of co-creating of this dance that we talked about, animals can forget and they can, animals can learn again. Cultures can forget. Cultures can, can learn again. You know, if you think about what's the average lifetime of a species on this planet, um, obviously that varies a great deal from hundreds of millions of years to a few million years. Um, an average, which, you know, it's never safe to do that often, but an average is typically about 10 million years. Think about the amount of change that takes place on this planet in 10 million years. Uh, a deer still is a deer, A human still is a human. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I think learning becomes so important. And what complements learning in a huge way is this whole field of epigenetics, what people are learning about, that, that genes aren't set. You can look at the genome kind of as the hardware, but the epigenetics is the software. That enables those genes to be expressed. Which genes are turned on? Which genes are turned off
0: by environmental cues? By
1: environmental cues, right. and that's just that's so important. Uh, and those complement one another. Then the the learning and the epigenetics and the whole thing
0: becomes part of the dance, part of making making the dance. I've heard you say before that uh, nature fills the world up with individuals, not with averages. What exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, people say nature pours
1: a vacuum yeah. huh? and it fills vacuum with individuals and no two are alike. Yeah. That's, I think, what, what has been amazing to me. To The more I went on in my career, um, the more I just came to appreciate. When we'd look at data sets and we'd you know be running trials and you'd have a treatment group and a control group and obviously in research you want you hope that your treatment group's different from your control group for whatever you're studying, and uh, but what used to amaze me the further we went along was to look at the individuals and to look at the variation among individuals within within treatment and control group and to realize that um, there's just this tremendous tremendous amount of of uniqueness. And then to realize how does that come about? Uh, why, you know, I think it's a, it's an absolutely safe statement to say that um, no two creatures on this planet within a species have ever been alike. No two creatures have, have ever been alike. How does that happen? Well, you have genes, and then you have ever-changing environments, and genes being expressed in those ever-changing environments. And then something we don't often talk about is the role that chance plays, the role of chance in in how environments change, the role of chance during the development of of an individual. Um, when you get into that literature, you realize that um, it, it becomes very tangible how at the molecular level chance plays a role in, in how cells and organ systems develop and so um, that combination genes plus environments plus chance means that no two of us are are ever the same and one could think about you know we were each conceived at a particular point in time with particular parents you know you could run that over and over again under exactly the same conditions And you come to realize that because chance chance is playing a
0: role, we still wouldn't turn out the same. We'd never be the same. So you've got both diversity and, and plasticity that are necessary for resiliency. Absolutely the case. Absolutely the case. And it's a marvelous,
1: I think, a marvelous thing to, to ponder that how, how natural systems do that and how, how all that works for me it's been amazing and it's whether you're talking about plants or animals it's the same kind of thing
0: if if someone say a rancher was interested in learning more about the, how, to, how to manage a ranch toward locally adept animals where would you recommend they start
1: um there are certainly people like Kit Farrow, for instance. Uh, I think of Kit because he's been such a voice for this mm-hmm. and, uh, and the kinds of, of things that we're talking about from a, from a rancher applied standpoint. Kit and, and people like Kit are certainly one place to, uh, to, to gain information. Um, the group that I was associated with uh, we put together a lot of extension outreach kind of information, and that's available on the behave website mm-hmm. uh, as another source of information. This book that I wrote, titled Nourishment, that'll be coming out in November, uh, is is an attempt to really pull all of that kind of information together it, it, in a in a very real way, I guess. It is about what does it mean to be in this dance in this dance of co I don't use the word adaptation very well because it, it's I think come to have a passive kind of connotation mm-hmm. organisms create offspring that are then selected for by the environment the environment selects a kind of a passive mm-hmm. passive way of looking at it I see it as a very creative thing um, and this book nourishment is really about that dance and that that kind of interplay and the book is addressing both human and animal health yes absolutely it's the whole point is to really not just talk about um, domestic and wild animals but to talk to bring human beings right into the conversation from the very
0: beginning you're sort of retired but but not exactly what what all are you doing in retirement besides writing books it's been an interesting
1: time of life, certainly. Um, it's been over nine years now that I, I left Utah State University. It's amazing to be able to do what you want when you want to be able to do it. You know? <laughs> That's been one of the most enjoyable things. And uh, my wife and I have thought a lot about what are our priorities during this time of life. Um, Spending time together, spending time with, with our children and with friends is really the priority that we have. Trying to do things for other, other people to the degree that we can do that. And then, you know, I, I certainly still love to, uh, to write articles for scientific journals. I don't do that at the rate that I used to do it. But I, I still enjoy that working on the book over the last 10 years has has really been uh, has really been rewarding as well but it's 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 having the time to be able to sit down and just simply sit and watch mm-hmm. watch be present in the moment be present in the moment sit and watch watch look at the plants look at the animals i have no desire anymore to study that even though it was fantastic. I absolutely loved doing that. I felt really, I was very fortunate to be able to do that for a career. And it it made me think how little I know now, uh, how really little, I, and I don't say that in just a trivial way, but but what, what it did was open up to me the, the mystery and wonder of the whole thing, how absolutely amazing it is. And to be able to spend time Doing that without the pressures of involved when you're raising a family, helping to raise a family, you've got a job, you're flat out all the time. That's been, that's been absolutely wonderful. And I tried to capture some of the flavor of that as I wrote this book of just reflecting over the years. And then we were living in the back woods of Colorado for several years. Uh, it's only been a couple of years that we moved up here to Ennis to be closer to our son and daughter-in-law um, here in, in Montana, but that was such a marvelous place to, to start, kick off a retirement, living way in the backwoods, probably 45 minutes drive from the nearest town, no, no one around, and just to be able to reflect on the mysteries and wonders and the
0: beauty the beauty
1: of this planet and then to think you know it's all we've got huh? it's all we've got i get amazed when people even really um, renowned people say well we should be thinking about colonizing mars or the moon or something it's like are you kidding me you know this is all we've got we better we better be taking care of it huh? very good dr Provenza, thank you for your time today Thank you, Dipa. It's been wonderful to to have
0: a chance to visit with you. For those listeners who are certified professionals in rangeland management through the Society for Range Management, there are continuing education credits available for these episodes. Simply take the brief online survey at the feedback button at artofrange.com and you'll find instructions for claiming your credits. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. The
1: views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does
0: not imply Washington State University's endorsement.